Okay, the main main announcement is that uh, there's a runoff election that's Tuesday, and you can vote early. So if you can vote early, vote. Vote often. Vote early. Vote right. So the uh, election comes up on Tuesday, and then um, uh, I can't think of any. Is there something else that's coming up? My prayer list. Yeah, that's right. We'll have a report about Camp Arete on Sunday morning. That's right. And uh, Jeff will give that to us. Just got to put him on the spot. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that we have this time and opportunity to come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, and that as we study your word, we're reminded that there is certainty and stability in life, and that is always related to you, and that the key is to focus upon you because you are our rock, our, you are our fortress, you are our hiding place. And Father, we're so thankful that we have you to trust, that as we look at the world and see the dangers and the threats and the uncertainties, we know that that we really do not have anything to fear because you have a plan and we just need to focus on that plan which is to grow to spiritual maturity and so that we can be a faithful witness for you. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we might gain greater insight into how we grow to spiritual maturity and the foundation that you have given us so that we can have a, a spiritual life and grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans 6, and while you're turning there, I said on Tuesday night that I would give you a little snapshot of what I did on, on Monday and Tuesday. I was uh, invited by the Southeastern APAC uh, Regional Christian Outreach Director, boy, that's a mouthful, uh, to attend a summit for Christian leaders. I was... Uh, probably the only person there from outside of that region except for a new uh, new uh, young lady who's just been hired to be the Southwest uh, Regional Christian Outreach Director. And the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing that is because since 2005, uh, APAC, or actually 2007, APAC, which for those of you who don't know is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, has uh, the, the, their national board looked at the trends in the United States 
and recognized that it would not be long before Israel would not, I mean, before the Jews in America could not carry the weight of influencing and educating our congressional representatives on the issues related to, to Israel. And they had some statistics that they uh, showed us at the conference, which I thought were quite interesting, on what the demographic shifts are in this country uh, right now and why it's important and why they felt it was important for APAC to change from having this image of just being a Jewish organization. And it was really interesting because I, that was about the time that uh, I first joined. And um, the way that came about, because I, I got a couple of questions on this after talking about it, I think at the last pastor's conference, is that um, Pam and I had read about APAC, and she was knowledgeable about APAC and I wasn't, uh, for several years, and she had wanted to join, but we sort of thought, well, it would be good for her to join, not me. We don't want to get the impression that we're activists or anything like that and a distraction, but we do want to be informed as to what is going on in terms of uh, 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 the uh, U.S.-Israel relationship and to the degree that we can be involved in encouraging writing congressional representatives or what our senators or whomever, if necessary, to educate and influence them in the right direction, just being involved as a good citizen. And so we joined and got literature and things of that nature, and we were invited to our um, you know, members were invited to their annual uh, dessert uh, brunch and turned out that a good friend of ours that we knew through other members of this church who's Jewish was a member of the local committee. And, um, and just one door after another opened, which led to uh, more and more involvement on my part because it is a great opportunity to, to be involved in our nation's government. Now let me give you a, little, a couple of statistics about what's what is is uh, is happening. For example, in, this year we have another uh, election where we're going to elect uh, many new members. We meaning this entire country is going to elect many new members to the House of Representatives. No matter what happens, no matter which party wins, there will be 61 new members of Congress this year. That's a 14% turnover just in this year alone. If you factor in the last two uh, congressional elections, that's close to a um, about a 60 to 70% turnover in personnel. And the thing that I've come to understand is a lot of congressional representatives, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory, negative, sarcastic manner, but they really don't know a whole lot about what they're doing when they go to when they go to Washington. No matter how right their instincts might be, there are a range of issues that face these legislators, and I've heard many of them say this that are you know, that are solid people, hard workers, and trying to do the best they can. That they just can't keep up with everything, and they have huge staffs. And most of these uh, staff members are under the age of 25 or 26. And most of those staffers are making most of their decisions. They're deciding who they see, who they listen to, what information gets to them. 
And so it's important for uh, citizens to have relationships with their congressional uh, representatives and build those relationships and to be able to educate them on specific issues because otherwise they may not get the right information. And so that's that's an important factor. And so you just realize that th- this year, for example, uh, there'll be a 14% turnover in the House and an 11% turnover in the in the Senate. Now, in terms of population demogra- demographics, in the United States in 1914, I'm um, 1940, excuse me, in 1940, at the beginning of World War II, there were three and a half percent of the American population was Jewish. In 1948, eight years later, Israel uh, declared their independence and was recognized by uh, President Harry Truman as an as a uh, independent state. And at that point, it was deemed necessary by uh, Jewish Americans to try to, to develop an organization to influence and educate legislators in the United States on uh, the political realities in Israel so that they would uh, understand what the issues were when it came to uh, legislation. And they started APAC. It's not a PAC, a political action committee. It's The PAC stands for Public Affairs Committee, and it was started before PACs, 20 years before there were PACs. And the goal was to educate and influence uh, uh, congressmen so that they would know what the issues were. In... Um, in 2010, just two years ago, the demographics in the U.S. are that there are 2.1% uh, that Jews make up 2.1% of the American population, and by 2080 they will make up 0.8% of the American population. Along with that, there's a population shift that is taking place in in this country. People are moving out of the large urban areas in New Jersey, New York, uh, northeastern enclaves, which have been a bastion of, of Jewish support. One out of every ten Jews in America lives in three congressional districts. Think about that. One-tenth of the Jewish population in America is only in three congressional districts. 50% of the Jews in America live in 30 congressional districts. Now, why is that important? It's important because when people think that, and a lot of people do, they think that if if, uh, uh, the U.S. is dominated by this enormous, uh, powerful Jewish lobby, um, if it's coming from the, the Jews, they're only influencing... 30, 30 congressmen in, in terms of their weight. That's only in 30 districts. Along with this, we're seeing a demographic shift where, for example, this year, Texas, because of our population growth and because of the decreasing population in Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas picked up four congressional seats. They, I think Ohio lost one, uh, New York lost one, Connecticut lost one, um, Florida picked up two, uh, Georgia picked up one, Alabama picked up one. So you see there's a, there's a shift away from the traditionally heavy uh, Jewish congressional districts. So if there's going to be an organization or if APAC is going to have uh, weight and um, uh, be spread out enough to influence and to educate congressmen from across this country, then the Jewish community cannot carry that weight. 
it's got to be shared. It's got to be carried by, by, by Christians. And they began to re- realize, I think, a lot of the Jewish community just woke up to the fact in the, in the early part of this century that there was a huge support base for Israel among the evangelical uh, community. And so they began to take a step that was very threatening for many Jews because of the 1900 years uh, history of Christian anti-Semitism and a tremendous amount of suspicion on the part of Eastern establishment liberal uh, liberal Jews. But they recognized that, that aside from all the other issues, whatever they might disagree on, there was one thing they agreed with evangelicals about, and that was that there needed to be a strong uh, alliance between the state of Israel and the United States. And in many ways, the state of Israel is really the, doing the front-line uh, work in protecting Western democracy. The technology, the military intelligence, the uh, many military tactics, strategy, things of this nature are field tested in, in Israel uh, before they're ever applied or developed in, in Western democracy. So in many ways, they are right there at the cutting edge. And right now, the situation in Israel has never looked more dangerous than it does today. One of the common metaphors that has almost become a cliche is that Israel lives in an extremely bad neighborhood. And the neighborhood has gotten even worse recently. Muslim Brotherhood, which has as its stated goal the destruction of the Jewish state, now is the official uh, ruling power in uh, Libya, in Tunisia, in Egypt, uh, and they are uh, in the ascendancy probably in this what's going on in Syria right now. And Syria is probably going to fragment into at least two states. Assad is a member of a, of a uh, excuse me, a religious minority called the Alawites. Alawites broke off from the uh, from the uh, from Islam a, a thousand years ago, and they are they hate each other. And uh, Assad, I will go out on a limb here and make a prediction. Assad will not step down, and it has nothing to do with his personal. Uh, uh, power ambitions. It has to do with the fact that if if he steps down and his government crumbles, then there will be a bloodbath like we have not seen in I don't know how many years. Because the the, the Sunnis who will then control Syria will be after, will be out to destroy, massacre, kill all of the Alawites. Interestingly enough, after World War One, when the area of, of, uh, of Syria and um, Lebanon was carved out and, and put under the authority of the French and the French mandate that was the same uh, legal document, the San Remo resolution that established the British mandate, that um, uh, there was an Alawite nation. They had their own flag, their own country, their own currency, their own post office, their own um, uh, everything. They were an independent nation from about 1926 to 1934. And then the French uh, forced them and the Druze and the Christian minorities to come together and form this sort of uh, artificial country that we know now is, is Syria. And now that's all falling, falling apart. So that's uh, that's what's going on on the northern border, and he's you know the the uh, Syrians have chemical weapons and a lot of weapons of mass destruction came into Syria from Iraq, and uh, it, it's extremely dangerous. Then on the south, uh, the the with the collapse of the Egyptian government, 
under Mubarak, you have now a um, uh, a, um, a a new Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, president. And if you notice the picture of him, he has a beard. His vice president has a beard. Uh, beards were prohibited by law in Egypt for the last 40 or 50 years or so because it was a sign of your allegiance to a radical form of Islam. And they are not shaving. So when you see them with their beard, that is a theological religious statement of their commitment to the ideals of the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, they're going to have a theocratic state. So that's coming. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood tries to have this facade of uh, of being... Uh, slow and peaceful, and they do. They have they have a very slow clock. What happens is other organizations like Hamas and um, uh, Al Qaeda and other jihadist groups get impatient, so they split off, and because they want to cause more trouble and mayhem, and you just have this multiplication now of a lot of different really bad guys over in in um, in the Sinai. And because of the peace treaty that uh, Israel and Egypt had, there were no Egyptian troops allowed in the Sinai, so it's become a no-man's land. It's like the Wild West on steroids because they don't have uh, Colt 45s. They have uh, missiles and bombs and all kinds of uh, equipment has been coming from the now Muslim Brotherhood state of Libya into, uh, into the Sinai. And all of this is happening on Israel's immediate southern border with no oversight, no controls, nothing there. Nobody, nobody 18 months ago could have predicted what was happening now. So, and, and I haven't even mentioned Iran yet. And Iran's on the verge of, of, um, of uh, trying to get a nuclear weapon. Did you read in the paper this morning? What was the name of the song, Thunderheart? And they, they, uh, another virus has infected. Can you go figure? Another virus has infected the... The, uh, nu- the computers at the nuclear plants in Iran. And last night, they suddenly started blaring at full volume uh, a song called Thunderheart by ACDC <laughs> and just spreading all kinds of um, other mayhem through their computers. So it, it, these, these things are slowing down the Iranians, but they're not going to... To stop them, so eventually there's going to be some some serious trouble. But the focal point of APAC is to recruit people who are interested in building a relationship with their uh, representatives and senators, so that they can help give them the right kind of information, so they understand what the issues are pertaining to legislation before the Congress and the Senate and encourage them to vote in the right way. One of the tools that they use to do this that has been quite effective is that APAC has a 501c3 educational arm that takes uh, congressmen to Israel, and you can recommend any congressman. And now I know most everybody here is living in a pretty good, solid district where we've got some really strong uh, uh, pro-Israel congressional representatives in the Houston area. Uh, Ted Poe, John Culberson, uh, I forget the name of the uh, rep that's up in uh, uh, Woodlands. What's his name? Anybody know? Um, uh, he's he's extremely strong, uh, pro-Israel. And w- what? Brady. Yeah, Brady, Kevin Brady. And he's extremely pro-Israel. And those guys sort of have a competition to see if they can get their name on a bill before APAC calls, somebody from APAC calls them 
to tell them what the, what, what's going on. So we're okay, but people, a lot of people who listen to this tape, a lot of people who are out there are in places where there's more cows than there are Jews. And they can be involved, they can, and, and their representatives don't know beans about Israel. And what happens is that, that uh, APAC takes them over on these junkets for a, a, a week or ten days to Israel, and they really get an education. I remember about three years ago I was at a luncheon, and um, Al Green, who's a Congre- Democrat congressman from here in Houston, uh, spoke. And uh, Al Green had never been to Israel before. He had just gotten back from Israel. And he talked about what a just a life-changing experience it was for him. And afterwards, I, uh, I was sitting next to him, and I, uh, as we stood up, I talked to him. I thanked him for uh, what he had to say and for uh, because he, was, he, he realized what a lot of issues were. And he turned around and looked at me, and he got right here in my face, and he was poking me right here in the chest, saying, Do you realize there are people over there who want to kill us just because we're Americans? It doesn't matter what we do. They just want to kill us. And I thought, you know, every now and then somebody does wake up. So these kinds of things are extremely, extremely important. And uh, that's why I get involved to the degree I can because I get educated, I get information, and just learn what's going on in the world around me and can try to have uh, a, a marginal uh, influence and uh, get to meet uh, some of these different uh, representatives and have something to say. We got people in Texas like Louis Gomert who was here back in March and others who are so pro-Israel. It's they're more pro-Israel than than a lot of a lot of Israelis are. So uh, we're uh, but that's the influence of, of of Christianity. So all of that is just to give you a little bit of a report. I'll, um, it's 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 scary what's out there. Uh, this Major Elliot Karoff, who spoke to us on uh, on Monday, also indicated that, number one, that Hezbollah is probably the... It's like the elite SEAL team of terrorist organizations. And they've been infiltrating uh, sleepers into the U.S. across the Mexican border for the last 10 years. Hundreds and hundreds of, of terrorists have come into this country, of Hezbollah terrorists have come into this country that way. And it's, it's extremely dangerous. And if we get involved in a, nu- in, in, in a war with Iran to stop their nuclear program, then you can just imagine how, how volatile things could possibly get with that kind of a scenario. But we have a God who's in control. And that is where our confidence lies. And as believers, we sort of have a ringside seat. We understand the trends of history and we can relax, and we can be a part of, of, of the action. So it gives us a lot of, lot of opportunity. Well, we're in Romans 6, and Romans 6 is dealing with a totally different subject, and that subject is our identity in Christ in relation to our spiritual life. And I want to, last time, in the last lesson, we went through a sort of a survey of Romans 6, 7, and 8, and I want to remind you of that, that in Romans 6, Paul says, it lays the foundation for how a declared righteous believer, that's what happens at, at salvation, how a justified uh, believer can live a, uh, a righteous life. And the foundation for that is understanding our identity in Christ. That's Romans 6. Romans 7 sort of deals with the problem of trying to accomplish the goal of living as a slave to God and as a slave to righteousness 
on our own without dependence on God the Holy Spirit. And so Romans 7 is Paul's, most of Romans 7 is Paul's personal story of his attempt to try to grow spiritually and be spiritual on the basis of just obeying the law, of just basically being moral, being religious, that that didn't cut it. He couldn't do it on his own because of the the, the, the power of the, of the sin nature that was still in his life. He didn't have the means to 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 really impact that, even though that power was broken. And then we get to Romans 8, which gives the solution that the real issue is that walk by the Holy Spirit, that the Christian life is a supernatural life built on our understanding of that relationship with God the Holy Spirit. So it starts in Romans 6, 1 through 4, with understanding our new identity in terms of the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Just to remind you, there are uh, three stages or phases to the Christian life. The first stage takes place in an instant in time when a person trusts in Christ as Savior. That instant, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, sees that righteousness of Christ in you, and declares you to be justified. But you're still a sinner. We still have a sin nature. We still have all of the bad habits. We still have all of the bad thinking patterns. We still have all of the cultural baggage that has uh, made us, uh, you know, it's, it's put the dis in dysfunctional. And that's how every single person is. There's no such thing as a dysfunctional family because there's no such thing as a functional family. Think about that. They're all dysfunctional because we're all dysfunctional because we're all sinners. And every family, every marriage, every person has a problem, and that problem is you are born with a sin nature that tells you and has convinced you and brainwashed you by the time you were two years old that life was all about you and not about anybody else. And the reason you and I have problems in life is because we're having to deal with seven billion other people who don't understand that it's not all about them, it's all about me. (laughs) And if they would just recognize that, then we could all be happy. But it's only when we become a believer in Jesus Christ and you have a new identity in Christ that we realize it's not about me either. It's about God. And it's about glorifying Him. And there's only one way to do that, and that is to learn to live on the basis of everything that God has given us. So at phase one, He gives us righteousness, that imputed righteousness, but we have to now learn how to live as a righteous person. It's only our position that's righteous. We are not experientially righteous. And so that's what happens in the spiritual life. We are learning to apply the word and to bring some realized control of the, of the, uh, of the sin nature. And that battle goes on until the day we die. And then we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord in glorification. And we have no more sin nature. Uh, the first phase is sometimes referred to as positional, or is frequently referred to as positional sanctification because of our position in Christ. That identification with Christ is the foundation. Uh, experiential sanctification is that growth process where we are advancing from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And then ultimate sanctification is when finally we dump the sin nature and we are absent from the body face to face with the Lord. In phase one, we're freed from the penalty of sin. 
That means we're no longer headed to a place of condemnation, the lake of fire. That is gone, but we're, we still have a sin nature. We have to learn how to, uh, how to break, how to, how to apply the reality on, on, as we grow as, and experience our freedom from the power of the, uh, of the sin nature. And then we're finally freed from the presence of the sin nature when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Uh, just a couple of things, uh, uh, points I reviewed last time. I had about nine points as a summary of these chapters. The first five deal with this chapter six, so I want to review those quickly. First of all, the foundation of Paul's explanation of how to live the Christian life is grounded in understanding that we are in Christ. Now, for a lot of people, they think, well, that's just some sort of academic, abstract, theological thing. But if, that, if it doesn't have boots-on-the-ground reality for us, then why does Paul spend time talking about it? It may be abstract. It may take place in a spiritual realm. It may be related to a legal forensic declaration of God on our behalf, but it's reality. It's just as real as anything you feel, taste, touch. It's, it's just as real as the bed you want to go home and crawl into tonight so you can get a good sleep. It's just that you can't quantify it, measure it, hold it, taste it, feel it, touch it, but it's just as real. And that's called faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we have to understand who we are now in Christ because until we get that, that into our thinking, we're still living on, on a false view of reality. The, the, the true view of reality is that, that everything about us has changed. We're not the person we were three seconds before we trusted in Christ as Savior. We're a different person, quali- qualitatively a different person. We still have a sin nature. We still have those memories. We still have the capabilities to be just as evil and wicked and nasty as we were before we were saved. But we don't have to be that way anymore. There's a real option. But we have to learn and train ourselves through the study of God's Word to not make those decisions. It comes down to volition. So the second point that I gave as an overview was that living the spiritual life is now possible uh, only because a total break with the power of the sin nature occurred at the instant of justification. That tyranny is gone. Prior, that one second prior to sin nature, from the time you were born to that time, you could only live on the basis of the sin nature. That was it. You had no other option. You did good things, but it came from a corrupt fallen nature. You did bad things, came from the same corrupt fallen nature. Jesus told his disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Evil people know how to do wonderful good deeds, and they can have great personalities. And they can want to do a lot of things. They can be extremely moral, but they're evil. So that evil, that corruption that is that we have when we're born, is um, is broken at the uh, instant of salvation. So we have an opportunity to make different choices. So third, that means the ultimate issue is really our volition. We have to decide whether we're going to go back to being a slave to our sin nature and our corrupt uh, passions or whether we are going to choose to become a slave to righteousness for God. Uh, But spiritual growth is more than simply a choice. Uh, 
It's not simply that you make good choices. There's a form of uh, psychotherapy called uh, cognitive therapy. Uh, there was another form called reality therapy. There are a lot of these different kinds of psychobabble therapies that come along that that emphasize this idea that Frank Meyer and uh, Frank Minerth and, and Paul Meyer uh, popularized at Dallas Seminary. Happiness is a choice. And there's truth in that. But happiness only becomes a real option if the choice you're making is biblical and it relates to walking by the Holy Spirit. If that's not there as the critical element, then then you have a pseudo-happiness and pseudo-stability. So it's more than simply making a choice. It's walking in dependence upon God, but the foundation is still a volitional choice, volitional responsibility. Point number five, the consequences there then are life and death. You're a believer, but if you make bad decisions, walk according to the sin nature, then you continue to see the corrupt influence of the sin nature in your life, and that ends to ends in death, not eternal death, not the second death, but in a temporal death-like experience because your life's not going to be any different from an unbeliever, and you're not going to experience the fullness and the riches that God has for you. But if we're obedient and we walk by the Spirit, then the promise is we're going to have abundant life, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your health is. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. It doesn't matter what your education status is. It doesn't. None of those things matter. What matters is just your walk with God, and because that's at the core and that's solid, then everything else will fall into place. That's just going back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So we come to our opening uh, verses in Romans 6. The first four verses form uh, the foundation uh, for, this, for, this, uh, for this section. Uh, Romans uh, 6, 1 through 4 is the opening paragraph. Then 5 through, uh, uh, 5 through 11 gives us our, our foundation. And then 12 through 14 develops the um, transition into the second part. It's kind of interesting when you look at this. I did a... Um, I did a color coding thing on it a couple of years ago with my computer. And what you discover in this chapter of uh, 23 verses is that the first, in the first 14 verses, you have primarily uh, nouns. You have, have a lot of nouns, which tells us a lot of things are named, identified. You have a lot of concepts, concepts such, such as death, uh, to sin, uh, baptism, uh, into Christ Jesus, uh, walking in newness of life, body of sin, slaves of sin, being freed from sin. All of these are, are related to a lot of, uh, of nouns. The verbs that you have until we get to verse 11 are all indicative mood verbs. And people say, oh, there he goes with the Greek again. But it tells you things. An indicative mood is a mood that is just stating the, the author's perception of reality. And in this case, the author is telling us this is the way it is. And it's not until verse 11 we get a first imperative mood verb. Now, an imperative mood gives you a command. It tells you what to do. So it lays the chapter out. The first uh, up 10 verses are all focused on this is what God's done for you. From verse 11 to the, re- to the end of the chapter, it's all, in, it's all saying, because God did this for you, this is what you are responsible to do. 
and you have one imperative after another. Uh, you have one imperative there in verse 11, and then uh, starting in about verse uh, in verse 13, 12, 13, 14, you have one imperative after another telling us things like, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, uh, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present your members uh, to God as being alive from the dead. Uh, for uh, sin shall not, that's an imperative force, sin shall not, uh, have dominion over you. You could paraphrase that. You should not let sin have dominion over you. So again and again, you have this imperative because of what happens in, in these first 10 verses, and the foundation for that is in these first four verses. Last time I had this slide up, just underlining key words. As you read through the Bible, one of the things you should do is get as maybe some colored pencils, uh, colored pen. I used to have... Um, we used to joke about it that, that we would act like the Christian ed majors at Dallas Seminary. We got four-color pens so we could color things. And later we got a little more sophisticated, and I, would, I had about uh, six or eight different colored pencils. And I would keep those tied together in a rubber band. And when I was sitting down reading my Bible, I had different things. I would highlight different theology I would highlight it with one color, so theology proper, I'd highlight it with one color, soteriology another color, and I would go through and I would highlight verses uh, that way, make notes in the margin, all of those kinds of things, just to help focus my thinking on what I was reading and trying to understand it uh, a, a, a little better. And so I've underlined some of these words that are significant, sin, and grace, understanding what sin is, that sin is the, the core meaning of both the Hebrew word and the Greek word that's used for sin is to miss a mark, to miss a goal, to shoot at a target and you don't even hit the paper. You just completely go, go wild. Uh, that's what sin is. It is missing the mark. What's the mark? The mark is the righteousness of God. We, we don't even come close to hitting the righteousness of God with our behavior. That's what's emphasized in passages like Isaiah 64, 6, that all, that, um, that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, that in the sight of God the best we do is, is not any better than the worst that we do because it's all tainted by that corruption. In Isaiah 53, we have the passage, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the context there is not just talking about Israel. It's not just talking about the prophet. It's not just talking about Israel, that generation. It's talking about all humanity has turned away from God and rejected God. It's the same as we have in Romans 1, 18, uh, 18 through 20. And so sin is missing the mark. Grace is God's goodness to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Grace is God's unmerited favor to us. What he does, if we got what we would deserve, we would all be in the lake of fire right now. We don't get what we deserve. And we don't deserve a savior and a free salvation. Uh, verse 2, we have the phrase dying to sin, that we have died to sin. What does that mean? Uh, and living in it. What does that mean? Uh, Romans 6, 3 brings in, notice you have two, two uh, uh, phrases there, that two clauses that have uh, baptism, baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death, and then we shift to the noun expression in verse 4, baptism into death, parallel to Christ being raised from the dead, and then uh, an, there is a 
uh, an implication of a command. It's really a statement of what the results should be of this, and that is to walk in newness of life. So let's break this down a little bit. In these first two verses, uh, Paul is using a time-honored pedagogical technique. Some people say, well, this is a debater's technique. It's any kind of speaker's technique to get people engaged in what you're saying. You ask questions. You ask rhetorical questions. Well, well, if all of this is true, Paul says, then, and if God's grace came because people had become so corrupt and sinful in Adam, uh, then if that brought about God's grace, then let's go sin some more and we can get more grace. And, and there are people who think that way. They may not want to admit it, but they do, that God's grace is so great that it really does, and, and sin's all paid for, it really doesn't matter what I do. That's called licentiousness or antinomianism. Anti means against. Nom, nomian is from the Greek word namas, meaning law, meaning it really doesn't matter. I can just live and do whatever I want to do because God has saved me. And, uh, and all I have to do is confess my sins and everything's okay. Uh, it's, it, it ignores consequences. It ignores, ignores the fact that, that uh, Scripture says that we're not supposed to do that because we haven't been saved so that we can abuse grace. But anybody who hasn't abused grace hasn't even tried to live the Christian life. Everybody. If you're, I remember one, one thing that... Uh, uh, one well-known Bible teacher said that that I thought was very good. He said, if you don't have people in your congregation abusing grace, then you're not teaching grace. Think about that. If you don't have some, if you don't have people in your congregation abusing grace, then they're not they're 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 you're not teaching grace. And it's a very good point. Because grace means that you have freedom. You have freedom to obey and you have freedom to disobey. God is not making you or me obey. We have freedom in Christ. Now, there are going to be consequences for bad decisions and disobedient decisions, but God doesn't make us. We have freedom. And it's, it's the same kind of thing as happened when you were growing up and when I was growing up, there came a time when you were probably 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, or in some people's case, 22 or 23, uh, when your parents decided you might be mature enough to leave at home alone. Y'all remember that first time. Because there were things that you knew that they would not let you do if they were there. And as soon as they were gone and you ran to the curtains and looked out and saw the headlights, taillights of the car go around the corner you were in the Oreos or the chocolate ice cream or whatever it was, and, um, and you took advantage of grace. That's what immature people do. And if it was some other more egregious violation of their authority, then what you discovered is that there were consequences for being irresponsible and using your freedom in a wrong way. And you realize that with freedom came responsibility and that you couldn't just do whatever you wanted to do because there were going to be consequences. And so part of growing up and maturing means that you have to be given a certain amount of freedom, and that includes freedom to fail. And in doing that, you take advantage of grace. You're not going to grow if you don't ever take advantage of grace because that shows that you're not growing up. You're just trying to stay in one place and you're afraid to do anything. 
I'm not justifying that. I'm saying that is the normal growth process. You know, we, we all know this. We learn more from what we fail, how we, when we fail, than by, by being obedient. But so Paul says, here's the opening question. What then shall we say? What's the logical conclusion from what I just said? He said, should we continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, what's interesting is the word he uses here is a compound word intensification of the basic verb meno. He adds a, an intensifying preposition to it, epimeno. Now, meno is the word Jesus used quite a bit that's predominant in John. In the Gospel of John, the upper room discourse, when Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, it's that word abide. And that word abide shows up again and again also in the first epistle of John. And it's a word that, that describes fellowship. We remain in fellowship with Christ. So uh, Paul uses this word, and there's almost a little tongue-in-cheek here that, that if, when he uses minnow, what's going to come up in a person's mind is the idea of fellowship, but sin is antithetical to the idea of fellowship. And so he sort of catches your attention and says, are you going to abide in sin? instead of abiding in Christ. He's making a subtle point there. Uh, no, we, we're not going to say I'm going to continue to abide uh, in sin, that grace might uh, increase. And the word there uh, for increase is a word that simply means to, to grow, to increase, to be prosperous, something that is expanding a lot. So we're not going to try to get more grace by, by sinning more. And he completely rejects that with a statement in the Greek that it really it sounds a little weak when you say certainly not. Uh, it is a very strong denial of something. He, he says, absolutely not. That's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. That's the implication of it. He said, and then he raises the real pedagogical point in the next question. He said, how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Now, what he's saying is if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a dead-to-sin kind of person. That's your new identity. You are a dead-to-sin kind of person. You are the kind of person uh, for whom sin has no place in your life. That's your new identity. That is who we are at that instant of salvation. So he's saying how shall we who are these dead-to-sin kind of people continue to live in sin? That's, that's not who we are. That's like somebody who is brought up in a, in a Marxist nation like the old Soviet Union, and all of a sudden they're given freedom. They, they're able to, to leave. They come to the United States, but they continue to live as if they're still in Russia. Now, that's insane. But that's how we are if we're freed from sin and we go back to it. It's the... Peter calls it the dog returning to its vomit. We just go back to the old nasty way of life. So uh, Paul's answer is, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And I want you to notice I've color-coded this, that the died to sin is an aorist tense verb. It's past tense. And all through this section, we're going to get a lot of past tense verbs talking about what God has already done for us. And then we have these future tense verbs that talk about what we should be doing as a result of that. So Paul raises this question, how shall we who died to sin? That's who we are. That's what's happened. 
live any more in it. And this is a future active indicative. So he's talking about you died in the past. This is your new reality. How are you going? Why in the world in your future are you going to uh, live in it? So the problem we have is this thing called a sin nature. And the sin nature is, uh, I'm going to chart it out with this uh, diagram. The sin nature has a core uh, motivator, and that's a lust pattern. And, of course, when you ever use the word lust, the first thing that people, comes into people's mind is sexual lust. But there's all kinds of other lusts. We have lust to be appreciated, to be loved, to be admired, to have power. We have lust for things. Uh, we, we live in a world where, where there's an incredible amount of unhappiness, not because of, just because of the way the world is, but because we're divorced from God. We're born in a world that's divorced from God, and we're divorced from God. And there's something in the very core of our being that says that life, that the life I'm experiencing isn't the life that it should be. And every one of us has had that kind of experience at some point or another. Uh, a common, maybe a common example would be every one of us probably has had a pet die. When that pet died, you knew this isn't how it's supposed to be. This, this is terrible. You've had someone you love die. You've had a parent die. You've had a friend die. You, you've gone through suffering. And, you know, life isn't, this isn't the way life should be. There's something at the very core of our being that screams out and says, this is wrong. Where does that come from? We know that we're living in a fallen world, and at the core of our being, we know this isn't the way God would, would, would make things. This is the result of something that's happened. And so because we're living in a fallen world where there's this complete vacuum because of the absence of God, we're constantly trying to find things that are going to fill it up. That's the lust pattern. We're looking for something in creation to fill the void that's been left by the loss of that relationship with God. And people try to fill it up with everything from drugs to alcohol to sex to uh, success to, to money to material things to friends to social status, popularity, power, all kinds of things. This is what moves and motivates everybody, and uh, it produces the actions in our lives, and we can go in one of two different directions, and sometimes we're going in both directions at the same time. We can produce that which is morally good, and we can produce that which we understand to be sin. Uh, sin has to do with with uh, mental attitude sins, such as uh, arrogance and envy and jealousy and anger and all these other things. And then we have overt sins, such as murder, violence, assault. Uh, and then we have uh, sins of the tongue that are just as destructive, gossip, slander, maligning, all of these kinds of things. That's produced by the area of, of weakness that produces sin and the area of strength that produces something good. But the, it still all comes out of the sin nature. When, from the time you're born until the time you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the only thing motivating you is your sin nature. You don't. You can't come out of any other place because you're spiritually dead and corrupt. And no matter how wonderful you are, no matter how sweet you are, no matter how kind you are, successful you are, moral you are, religious you are, it all comes out of this place. It's all corrupted. 
We also have trends. One trend is towards asceticism, that somehow I'm going to make God happy with me by the things that I give up or the things that I do. That's asceticism and legalism, and this can lead to moral degeneracy like the Pharisees in the, in the New Testament. Or you have uh, the other trend towards licentiousness and lasciviousness. And guess what? Some of us are absolute masters at one second being running one way and the next second we run the other way. Because that's just the complexity of our of our sin nature. And then we like to cover it all up with a facade of, of how sweet and wonderful we are. So this sin nature is what controls us. And it produces habits. And from the time you're about two seconds old on, you start developing habits where this sin nature is helping you satisfy what you think you need to be happy. And it, and it pushes all those lust pattern buttons and, and all the trends, and everybody's a little different for a lot of different reasons and a lot of different factors, but this is what's at the core of it, and it controls us. It's the boss. Then we trust Jesus as Savior, and something happens. The boss now has competition, and the competition is we have a new nature because we're born again. We're regenerate. We, are, we have a new life in Christ, and we have a new power source that's more powerful than the sin nature, and that's the Holy Spirit. But we have to make a choice as to who's in control, and that's what Romans 6 is all about, understanding that. So Paul goes on to say with his third question, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, as soon as you see the word baptism, people get into uh, a bit of a quagmire because this has been such a battleground for so many years that people automatically think of water baptism. But that's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about believer's baptism. And, I, and I'm amazed how many uh, people think that this has something to do with water baptism. It, it doesn't because of this, this phraseology here related to what we are baptized into. So we have to break this down a little bit to understand it. The Greek verb is baptizo. It's one of those interesting uh, Greek words that didn't get translated it got transliterated. And the reason it got transliterated is because nobody had the courage to translate it because it would create a huge uh, ecclesiastical battle. So they decided that they would just avoid the battle and just transliterate it, and then nobody would really know what they were talking about. Uh, If you translated it, you would translate it with the word immerse, and by the time uh, this came along, people were not immersing anymore. They were sprinkling so now you've got a problem if you translate it immerse and everybody's sprinkling the people and the pew are going to start questioning you. So let's just uh, let's just pull the wool over their eyes and we'll translate it as uh, uh, transliterate it as baptizo, as baptize. So uh, we're told that uh, in in verse uh, six it's used twice in an aorist passive verb. Now, that's important because the aorist, again, is referring to something that's happened in the past. 
And the passive means that we receive this action. It's something that's done to us. It's not something we do for ourselves. And so in verse 3, somebody baptizes us but doesn't tell us who there. It says that somebody baptizes us, and then this new place that we're put into is in Christ Jesus. Now, to understand this, we have to understand something about the meaning of the word. The word baptizo means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. That's its basic dictionary meaning, its denotation or literal meaning. But as an action, the word was used in a figurative sense to talk about identifying someone with a particular course of action or a person or an object or a new status in life. It was often used as an, initi- as an initiation rite. For example, in Judaism, uh, because we've talked about this with the proselytes the last uh, few weeks in, in Acts 8, if you were a Gentile, and a male Gentile, and you wanted to completely convert to Judaism, then you had to go through circumcision, and then there had to be an initial rite of ceremonial purification. It was a baptism. So this idea of ceremonial washings and purifications were not unknown in the ancient world, but were very much a part of what was going on there. And it signified that you were now identified with something new. In the uh, ancient Greek world, they would uh, uh, take the spears of the recruits in in the uh, Greek army after they got out of boot camp, they would plunge the spear into a bucket of, uh, of pig's blood, indicating that now this recruit is trained and he's ready to go out and become, be a warrior. And so there was that identification there and indicating a, a progress into a new state. Now, we diagram this uh, in terms of using two different uh, uh, perspectives on what happens in terms of our relationship with God. One side, the left side, expresses the eternal realities that we have uh, in Christ and all that God does for us in Christ. And at the instant we trust in Jesus, believe in Christ, then we're uh, identified with Christ, placed in Christ by what's called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. This is something that happens instantaneously at the instant that we're, that we're saved. In terms of our experience... Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is uh, described in terms of this phrase, filling by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit or walking in the light. And then we have uh, the option of being out of fellowship, which is when we sin and we're under the control of the sin nature. We're in carnality. So when we sin, we're out in carnality. And then when we confess our sin, use 1 John 1, 9, we're back in fellowship. But... The left side is always true. We're always identified with Christ no matter what's happening on the right side. We're always in Christ. We're always indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and those realities never change. They are eternal. Now, when we talk about baptism, I'm just going to go through this point and the next one before we shut down. There are... um, eight different baptisms. The first three are what we normally think of as a baptism. They're ritual baptisms which involve water. There's the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, which is a unique, distinct baptism. 
It wasn't, it wasn't John's normal baptism. John was calling people baptized for the repentance of your sins. Jesus had no sins to repent from, so he's not going through John's baptism. It is an initiation of Jesus into his new ministry as uh, prophet and priest offering the kingship to the messianic kingship to the nation Israel. The second category is the baptism of John the Baptist, uh, which is, uh, was immersion. And we went to a site on this last trip that probably has pretty good attestation to being a place on the Jordan where John uh, conducted uh, baptisms uh, due to geographical and some uh, 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 written evidence. Uh, then we have the believer's baptism, which occurs after a person trusts in Christ as Savior, and it's a ritual in order to express the reality of what Paul is describing here in Romans 6, 1 through 4. Just like communion focuses uses two concrete objects, the bread and the, and the cup, to express the abstract realities of the hypostatic union and substitutionary atonement, so water baptism for the believer is a physical, literal uh, uh, ritual that depicts, that can be used to help understand what happens in the spiritual realm of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, there are five real baptisms uh, in the sense that these are baptisms that don't involve, they're not ritual, and they don't involve water except for the first one the baptism of Noah. Uh, The ones who got wet died. The ones who were baptized with Noah were dry, uh, but water was involved. Then we have the baptism of Moses also sort of involved some water because the Jews who followed him through the Red Sea didn't get wet. And they're identified with Moses and uh, by the cloud and the water, identified with Moses in his trust in God. And the ones who got wet were the Egyptians and they all drowned. Then we have the baptism by fire, which is a baptism related to judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation period. The baptism of the cross, which is Christ's identification with our sins on the cross. And then the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which takes place at the instant of salvation. Now, those are the eight baptisms. The baptism that we're talking about here in Romans 6 is the last one, the baptism by the Holy Spirit because this is the fundamental spiritual reality for the church-age believer. So I'll stop there tonight, and then we'll come back next time with the uh, other points uh, as we go through our understanding of our foundation for being able to, uh, uh, the foundation of this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the foundation for our spiritual life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be able to focus on on the, the truth of your word, and the truth of our, uh, our new identity in Christ, and our position in Christ, and that because we have this new position, new, new uh, power, new ability, new presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, and the new empowerment of God the Holy Spirit, we are able to uh, say no to the sin nature and yes to you and live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can be glorified. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things so that we can... Uh, Uh, not fall by the wayside, but continue to press on uh, to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.